Okay, uh, so last week we did the outline. Uh, I mean, we did the background. I have an outline here. I, I mentioned last week that I really think the book of Jonah is not about Jonah. Uh, it, it, is, it is all about the Lord, and he simply uses Jonah to reveal himself to us. So the outline that I have for the book goes like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Then the activity of the Lord in verses 4 to 6. The faithfulness of the Lord, despite Jonah's unfaithfulness, 7 to 17. And then beginning in verse 17 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2, the Lord restores. In chapter 3, the mercy and grace of the Lord toward Nineveh. And then in the last chapter, we see the compassion of the Lord. So I, this was just something the Lord just showed me while, while working through the book, thinking on it for weeks. And realizing that, you know, I'm, for me, I'm trying to make too much out of Jonah. When, you know, really, you come to the end of the book, it's undeniable. Jonah's a stinker. Uh, he's, he's not really somebody we want to be like. Um, but but there, there, are, there are lessons to learn from his life. But I really think the Lord is showing us himself. So uh, just by way of just getting us all started on the same track here, I have a question for you. Are you trusting the Lord for the Lord's good? Or you for what you believe to be good? Are you trusting the Lord for the Lord's good? Or you for what you believe to be good? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, familiar verses to us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And he will make you paths straight. When Arlene and I got married, we were pretty young. She was 19, I was 20. Um, <laughs> when I told Dad we're getting married, he, his question was, Son, what are you going to live on, love? <laughs> and my response was, No, Dad, you. <laughs> Though I did not verbally say that. <laughs> um, so right away, Dad, uh, Dad had a construction company, and I got uh, a job working for him on one of, the, one of the framing crews. And so I worked in South Louisiana for a while doing that, and then Arlene and I moved back to Canada for me to finish Bible college, and I got a job up there with a, on a large framing crew. And we would, be, because it was such a big crew and we were building such big buildings, we could erect large walls at a time. So we would, uh, you know, everybody's doing their own job, but when a wall was ready to come up, we all called everybody together and picked the wall up. And then one of us would run and grab the level, put it up against the wall to make sure it was plumb. And so we would say, you know, push it out a little, bring it back a little bit, right there, a little bit more, and then and they would get really picky, just a little bit more, and they'd finally get it right where it's supposed to go, and he would yell, nail it there. So one morning, we're putting walls up, and I figure, okay, I've been on the crew long enough. I need to grab this level myself. So I grab it, and I run over against the wall, and I tell him, push it back a little bit, a little bit more, and then I said, that's good enough. And it got, it got uncomfortably quiet. One of the bosses, there was three men that owned the business, one of the bosses came over to me and stood right next to me, leaned over, and he whispered in my ear. He said, Kelly, good enough is not good enough. We want that bubble right in the middle. 
my good enough did not achieve the intended or the desired result of the boss. And really, that's what mattered. That's all that mattered. I was working at his hill one summer. I was in charge of the tower. And I always saw uh, the tower as being an incredible place to teach, to disciple, to, 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 to teach the gospel to non-believers, to disciple believers. Just incredible things that go on up there. And one of my favorite things to do was to, be, was, was to strap the camper in, all the gear that we put on them, and just before, uh, they, as they're leaning off the 40-foot platform, and just before they descend, I look at them and say, wait, just a minute. And then I'll say, well, that's good enough. Just to watch the reaction. And, I mean, sometimes these, these 12-year-olds, I mean, they're just so concentrated. They hear me say good enough. They go, okay. And they wait, what? I say, it's good enough. And they don't want to take another step. Why? I'd look at them and say, why don't you want to take another step? And they'd look at me and say, because good enough ain't good enough. And I'd say, that's right. And so then I'd go into some kind of teaching thing from there. You can't keep a teacher from teaching. Ask my family. So what, what do we see here? In looking at verses 1 to 3, we see the word of the Lord came to Jonah. What is it that the Lord would have from Jonah? The first three verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So there's three observations that I have from these three verses regarding the Lord. The first one is this, the initiative of the Lord found in verse 1. We see that the active person, the one that starts this whole narrative, is the Lord. He's taking the initiative. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, I started to think about this and, 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 and realized how many times in Scripture, throughout Scripture, we find God's initiative. In the beginning, God created. And it just keeps going from there. I uh, thought about Psalm 139. Let's go there. Psalm 139. You can keep one finger in Jonah and the other one in Psalm 139. We're going to go back and forth here for a little bit. I think I, I told you this. If not, I'm going to tell you again. Just interesting to me how it played out. I was on a plane flying home from Colorado, having been teaching up there, and uh, I ended up sitting next to a newspaper editor. Uh, he got, we got to talking about politics, and he, had, you know, he told me about some of the people he knew in politics, some of the big names. And, and uh, so he ended up kind of picking my brain. He was interviewing me, I think, is what was going on, just trying to get the, just trying to, as an editor, trying to get the feel for what people think. And knowing that I was a Bible teacher, he asked me, does the Bible say anything about abortion? And I said, yes, it does. And he says, it does? I said, yeah. 
do, do you want me to show you? He says, yes, please do. So I grabbed my Bible, and I opened it up, and it literally opened to Psalm 139. I said, oh, look, there it is. He says, no. You're kidding. I said, no, I'm telling the truth. No. I said, yeah. And it's not the first time something like that's happened. He said, really? I said, yeah. And so then I read these verses to him, beginning in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me. Oh God, how vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And so I looked over at him, and he was just staring at my Bible. And then slowly he looked up at me, to me, and he said, Well, there it is. <laughs> and I just said, Yeah, there it is. His initiative toward us is just so incredible. The next thing I see is the knowledge of the Lord. In verse 2 of our text, and we'll come back to 139 in a second. In verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness has come up before me. Again, in Psalm 139, we see his knowledge of man in verses 1 to 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand up upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. So we see the knowledge of the Lord in man's life. And then my third observation from these first three verses about the Lord is the presence of the Lord in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Again, staying in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 12. The presence of the Lord in man's life. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me, will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. 
darkness and light are alike to you. So what's the point that I'm trying to make with these three observations? The initiative of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord, and the presence of the Lord. I find all of this consistent with our created design. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we find there that we were created in the image of God. Therefore, we're to know Him. We were, his initiative toward us and His creating us leaves us with the privilege of knowing Him. And knowing Him, we find His presence. In Genesis 2, 7, And the Lord God formed man from dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Here we find His knowledge of us by His very presence in us. And what does this mean? What kind of relationship, this presence of Him, what... What's it like? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, we read something that's really interesting that it's easy to miss. And there we find that Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking in the garden. And they hid themselves. They heard the sound and they recognized it. So they hid themselves. This, this relationship we were created for is so intimate, it's so rich and deep that we were literally made to be in His presence, to know Him, to be with Him. And so, with this thought, his, God's initiative, His knowledge, and His presence, I want us to go on and see how this is still a reality for us. God's initiative toward you and me and Christ. And turn with me to Hebrews Chapter 1. And we find in the beginning of this book, again, we see God's initiative from the very beginning of the book. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God's initiative toward you and me is found in Christ. He has spoken to us. Then staying in Hebrews, let's look at God's knowledge of us in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the word of, the, the word of God is living. Now some ask the question, the Word of God, is this talking about Christ or is it talking about the Bible? And I say it doesn't matter. Both brings the same person, and that's Christ. But within the context of Hebrews, since we've already seen that God is speaking to us from chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, then I think it's safe to say, because of the context, the Word of God in chapter 4, verse 12 is Christ. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Here we see God's knowledge of you in Christ. And then finally, in chapter 13, we see the presence, God's very presence, the Lord's presence for you in Christ. In chapter 13, in verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money 
being content with what you have. So not finding our security from what the world has to give us. Why? For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The presence of God is found in Christ. The book of Hebrews is a revelation of Jesus being better. The Lord's presence is ever with us in Christ. Yes? Mm. Yeah, I do too. Can count on him. Any other thoughts? Yes, Tom. Um, well, it's, it's so interesting. The uh, living and active, the word of God is living and active. Now, in our day, they some people refer to the Constitution of the United States as living, but that's used to say that it's changing. Hmm. Well, I uh, it, 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 first thought I had was the the fact that that Christ, you know, being being living is also the one that never changes. So, you know, the, I think what they're, I mean, the liberal mind will say that there is no absolute, and so there's no absolute to truth that it's always changing. But Jesus tells us, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And then we find in Hebrews that he's always with us. He never changes. And so I, I, that's my first thought. Any other thoughts with that? Yeah, just like that. If you, if you call a, a document living, mm -hmm. right, you're talking about the, the, the spirit of what you're trying to capture is that other people are modifying it. But here, it's actually that what we're talking about has tension on its own, independent from any kind of activity. Okay. That's the, the significance is that it's what God has spoken, but the very thing that he has spoken in itself is has a existence, a knowledge, and maybe the things that you're listening here, initiative and presence, that are in independence, but not in independence the way that we would think of it, acting separately and in this union. But it's an extension, and there's an intimacy here that, um, that is trying to be captured but also a, a knowability to it. Like it's not something like talking about um, the unknowability of truth from a liberal mindset. Here it's actually something that will approach you and pursue you and make itself known to you. Mm -hmm. That even if you insist you will take no action, it's like, it's all right, you don't get to vote. Like I pursue you because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And I, I continue to do that because you cannot prevent me. Like there's, there's a more powerful sense of life here than in, the, in this notion of, I, I would say like Tom's example is more talking about mutation than life. Okay. Yes. I would say though too, Fosel will call scripture an ancient document. Mm. Um, and I would say it's not ancient. It is living and, um, and is effective in our lives today to inform us so that um, we can be the next generation of the old guard, so mm. that we can guide the word, live out the word, because it is living in us in, in today, and is active to inform our behavior too, as well as 
what we believe about God and who Christ is. Um, um, as always effective um, for each of us as believers. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say that I, you know, I can read the Constitution and you know pretty much grasp what it says. Now I may read it a few years later and go, oh, I didn't see that before. But the way the Word works and the way the Lord works through the Word to to talk to to speak to me where I am when I'm a new believer, and I think you know a year or two later I, I may have this new revelation. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I've, I've now I've reached it. Now I've got it, you know. And like two years later, it's like this whole new epiphany. This whole thing that I've read it maybe a hundred times, and I never saw it. You know, I never. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is working in a way that no other document can, because His Word is part of Him, mm-hmm. and He is eternal. He is so far beyond us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I often find it very profitable. You know, because I teach the same thing every year at His Hill. It's really profitable for me to read it again, and and how oh my goodness oh oh yeah wow, and it wasn't like it was changed since the last time I read it you know. Okay, anything else? Okay, yeah, go ahead. In the context of, of that section from uh, from Hebrews four, like the immediacy of what's what's being brought up is Psalm ninety five, where the the spirit of it is if today you hear his voice receive his instructions and be obedient. Mm-hmm. And it's it's at that point trying to elaborate to say whatever you hear today is is not just like a carbon copy of something before, which would just be an ancient text, right? But it's something that it is it is being brought anew into your life. So don't reject it as like, well I've heard it before. Well congratulations. But there's probably a reason why you've heard it before, because you will continually always need to hear it again. Like, we will remain children of Christ. We will not become adults of Christ. We will only always need to hear it again. Okay. And it's not that. I think the other thing that strikes me about the context of Hebrews 4 is that it, it contrasts the living Word of God to the rest that humanity enters, mm-hmm. right? And it calls us to enter rest and allow... Mm. Yeah. 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 That's all immediate in the context. Right. Yeah. Good. So, how will Jonah, we know the story, most of us do, how will Jonah respond to God's initiative and his knowledge and his presence? Well, he heard from the Lord. We know that because of how. Of, of things that he says a little later, but also just what he does. He attempts to run from the Lord. What does that mean? Well, with what we've looked at, he's, his attempt is to run from God's initiative, from God's knowledge, and God's presence, according to Psalm 139. And we see that this is a deliberate Disobedience. Look in verse 3, back in our text. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. From the, right off the set, he knows exactly what he's doing. 
he's not just running out of control wherever he gets. <laughs> he's just not running, but he has a, he has a destination. And it, it's, Tarshish is, is uh, repeated three times in that verse. This is a deliberate disobedience. Jonah wants his way for Nineveh, not God's way. See, in chapter 4 and verse 2, he says this, He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said? See, I told you. While I was still in my own country, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. He knows what he's doing. He is purposefully disobeying. And look at the picture we're given. Tarshish, which is one of the hardest things for me to pronounce, <laughs> is, is the opposite direction of Nineveh. And when you, know, you think about that, how easy it is for us to identify with Jonah. When we run the opposite direction from what God has for us in marriage or what he has for us with regards to divorce. What he has for us so much in today's society with sexual identity. You know, Arlene was just telling me this morning she and Madeline went to San Antonio last night and we're both were found both of them all of a sudden were very uncomfortable in the women's restroom because of somebody else that was there. How often will we do this? And we look at that and you know what? We can identify with that, with the rebellion of it. How often do we know this is what the Lord has for us, as he tells us in his living word? We don't have to guess, but for some reason, you know, we can justify going the opposite direction. Tarshish is an interesting place. It's probably found in southern Spain, which means it was about 2,500 miles away from Joppa. It was a Phoenician colony. Now, the Phoenicians were known for being excellent seamen and their ships for being just top-notch vessels. And I, I, I look at this and I think, wow, man, I, th this makes a lot of sense. If you're going to go that way, do it the best you can. How often do we do the same thing? We find security and, and, a, and ability from either from someone else or ourselves or something else other than the Lord with the decisions that we have to make in life. And, you know, it just makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? But look how the Lord repeats this, this warning throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 31.1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many. That makes sense, doesn't it? And in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. In Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. 
And then 1 John 2.15, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, where should our dependence be? And again, the word is very clear, and it's back in Hebrews again, chapter 12 and verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And there, in the context of that, he's telling us, looks in, in dealing with your sin, and dealing with those things that so easily entangle you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. See, it's, 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 it's natural for us to be fixed on the problem, isn't it? Because the problem shouldn't be there. So it's natural for us to be fixed on the problem, to get rid of the problem, but the writer of Hebrews tells us that's the wrong place to be fixed. But be fixed on Jesus. The word fixed means to look away from all else to. So this is how we deal with those things. We are dealing with those things in our life as we are fixed on Jesus. We have an alumni. Her name is Vera. Vera is from Ukraine. And uh, if you listen to our podcast, you know that we've had, had her on the podcast. And she um, had the opportunity to to leave the country, to get out, just as the war was beginning. She made the choice to stay. And some of you maybe remember Vera. She was a student with us only just a few years ago, not that long ago at all. And it's kind of sobering to see her dressed like this. She stayed in the country, and in the podcast, in the interview I conducted, I asked her, Vera, why? Why are you there? Why didn't you get out? And her response was this. The best place to be is wherever you know God placed you to be. Peace is not just calm surroundings. Peace is knowing that you are in God and that God is in you. And no matter what happens next, you know that you are with Him. Running away from war to wherever you know God doesn't want you to be There's just no peace. You wouldn't get peace. And I know for myself that at this moment, God placed me to be with my parents. Their parents are too old to evacuate. So there was no doubt in her mind, this is where the Lord has me, so this is where I will be. Because it's better to be with Him than to be safe without Him. And just the other day, she sent me, (laughs) I don't know why she does this to me, she sent me a video of her sitting and listening to the missiles going overhead and exploding just a few blocks away. But she's confident that this is where she needs to be because this is where the Lord has her be. What an incredible example she is to us. Yeah. Yeah. Here we're very comfortable in our hands. Mm-hmm. And we can always look at the next thing. 
she has some sobering things to say to us about that too. She, um, she's pretty bold. And uh, it's interesting to hear her closing comments in that interview. She's being very polite in how she says it, but she has a challenge for us. Yeah. Um, something that we see in this book is that God deals with deliberate and habitual sin. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Spend a lot of time in Hebrews. Had to be careful how much I say now that we have so many students coming to Sunday school because I teach the book Hebrews and I don't want to give too much away. I'll, I'll have nothing to say, which doesn't bother them at all. Um, in chapter 10, in verse, beginning in verse 26, again, God deals with deliberate habitual sin. For if we go on sinning, Willfully, and the word willful there means voluntarily. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is futile for us to disobey the Lord. We see it with Jonah, the futility and his exercise of purposefully fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Immediately in verse 4, there's a storm. Isn't that interesting? This is how it reads, Then the Lord, again, the Lord, Then the Lord hurled a great wind. We're going to look at that more next week, but for now, the futility of going in the opposite direction. The rest of the book plays this out, too. It's interesting, in, uh, in verse 3, the word down is used twice. Again, it's used in verse 5, though translated a different way. And then again, chapter 2 and verse 6, it's used again, the same word, all four times, although translated uh, different in our English language in verse 5 and chapter 2, verse 6. Down. It would appear, and it's been observed by many, that this word, this continual going down, going down, going down, what some have observed is that, you know, what maybe was a, a hesitant or at best a hesitant disobedience, but, any, but nonetheless a purposeful disobedience, once we give ourselves to that, at some point, it takes control of us. And we are there in its grasp until it's finished with us. Any thoughts there? Okay.
Sometimes our disobedience uh, can be disguised. It can be disguised as great obedience. It can be disguised as the best way to go. But it's, it's really nothing more than just trusting ourselves. Uh, my pastor growing up, Jim Merriman, who's with the Lord now, first man I remember preaching Christ. When he was in seminary, he was already married and had a family. He was the big man on campus because not only was he married and had children, but he was also pastoring a pretty good-sized church while going to seminary. And there were other, some of his classmates, one uh, being um, um, Charles Stanley. You know, that my pastor was the big man on campus. And after graduating, he moved to a bigger church. And after pastoring that for a while, he went on to a bigger church. He, he was becoming known within the denomination, and the, the top people in the denomination knew who he was, and he rubbed elbows with them, socialized with them. Everything was going great. It just, this was how you serve the Lord. And then one day he was so fed up with it. It was so useless. It was so unsatisfying. See, it just took him to the depths. It took him down. It took him down. It took him down. Until finally he decided, my, all this effort I'm putting in to being a Christian, all this effort I'm putting in to be a pastor, all this effort I'm putting in, it's just a waste of time. So he quit. He quit the pastorate. He quit Christianity. He and his wife walked away from the church, joined the country club, and lived a completely different life. Several years later, he was washing his car, and a flyer blew up to his feet. He picked it up to look at the flyer, and it was an invitation to come to one of the local churches where Major Thomas was going to be speaking. And he thought that was interesting because he remembered reading several of Major Thomas's books. And so he just threw the flyer in the trunk of the car and forgot about it. On Sunday morning, the former pastor had his golf clubs and was on his way to the country club. And when he went to the car to put them in the trunk, he opened the trunk and he saw the flyer. And he thought, that's interesting. Don't know why, but I'm going to go. So instead of going to play golf that day, he went to that church and he heard Major Thomas preach. And he was so captivated by what was being said that he went back the next night, and the next night, and the next night, all the, all the meetings that week. And then he realized just what had happened. That he had, been, he had had all the study of God's word. He knew all the answers, and he, he, he knew the right things. But he was entrapped by what seemed to be the better way. Though it was the opposite way from what the Lord had for him. And at that moment, he, his life changed. He came to realize that there was no better place to be than with the initiative of the Lord the knowledge of the Lord, 
the presence of the Lord, all found in Christ. And he went on to have a ministry that greatly impacted both Paul and me, my mom and dad. Really just changed the course of my life in coming to realize the best way was not the necessarily safe way or the logical way. But the best way was to be with Him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. And then a verse we like to throw around a lot. And sometimes we become too comfortable with familiarity. But Galatians 2.20 I've been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. So why do I even consider my way? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, not by faith in me. But in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is useless and fruitless to live through doing as we please and pursuing our way because it goes against our created purpose, our created design, his very life in us. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Any other thoughts? Okay, the easiest way is to go to the His Hill website and there's a button on top that says podcast. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Then let's pray. Kevin, would you lead us? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Kelly uh, bringing it to us this morning. I ask that you would make it fruitful in our hearts. Amen. Thank you all for listening and for participating.